everybody. I wanted to take a moment to talk to you about driving with Uber again. Why? Because it's a really great opportunity to make some legitimate money. If you've taken an Uber, you know how great the experience is and it's drivers who make that experience great. Seriously, every time I talk with somebody who drives with Uber, they always have amazing things to say. They love being their own boss. They make amazing money. It's easy to start. All you need is a car and a license. If you're a parent, this is a great way to work around your family schedule. Students, you can make some extra money between classes and make it rain. Uh, now is the prime time to cash in on driving with Uber. Trust me, you'll thank me for telling you how to get paid every week. So what are you waiting for? You have a car, you have a license, put them both to good use and start earning some serious, serious money today. Sign up to drive with Uber. Visit drivewithuber.com. That's drivewithuber.com, drivewithuber.com. And tell them your big brown buddy, Chris Denson, sent you Innovation Crush. Peace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson. Yay. I won phantom applause from the, from the couch. Thank you, Stacey. Um, I'm your gracious host, Chris Denson. In case you're tuning in to this show for the first time ever, we cover all things innovation, ideas, creativity, reinvention of the way we live and do things. So uh, today, I'm excited because I, I hugged my first rabbi. It's so, your first rabbi? That's a, yes. Yep. Wow. That's, that goes in the record books. That is going in the am record I, books. Am I your first, first black hug? No. No, oh. no, no. Oh, all right. Well, no. show's over. Uh, I like black men. <laughs> me too. I mean, not, I mean, I, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that voice you just heard is uh, Sherry Hurst. Say hello. Hi. Welcome. I'm so happy to be here, Chris. I'm so happy that you're here. Uh, I guess for starters, let's just give a little bit of a, I don't know, the 92nd version of, of who Sherry Hirsch is. I am a rabbi, which is my official title, but I'm also the author of Thresholds, my newest book with Random House. I have a previous book with, called We Plan, God Laughs, but my real claim to fame is that I'm the mother of four children, Emmett, Eden, Aaliyah, and Levi. And in this day and age, people are like, four children, that's so many. But I mean, I know people that have 13 kids, right? A lot of people- Who not has a, 13 kids? People abroad have a <laughs> lot of kids. Catholic families have a- Ladugers have a lot of kids. <laughs> That's true. They have a lot of kids. So four doesn't feel like so many. I wish we had six, but I'm very grateful for the four and what are What are their ages? They are 12, 10, 8, and 5. So we're on the cusp of bar mitzvah in December, which is a big Jewish transitional moment when you go from being a young boy to being a man. I actually live in a very Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. So. Oh, so you know the whole thing. I know the whole, I know the whole thing. Yeah, so you're getting bar mitzvah yep. this week. This, is, this will not be about Judaism. This will <laughs> just be about you as, as an individual. So, you know, this idea of thresholds and we plan God laughs. Like, what are, what's the, you know, what's the Sherry Hirsch method, method or message that uh, is behind these sort of writings? And, and we'll get into your career as well. But like, Right, so the, it's atypical for a rabbi to write books for all of America, right? Typically, rabbis write Jewish rabbi books and this is really a book for everyone and it sort of separates from the pack because it's about a universal theme which is that life is challenging and often we know exactly what to do in the rooms of our lives like you know what to do in the bedroom i won't explain that (laughs) well you know me (laughs) (laughs) well i think you know chris (laughs) you know what to do in the kitchen you know what to do in the living room But we never talk about what happens in the hallways. And using that metaphor, often we're stuck in hallways and we don't know how to cross into the next room. So it's really giving people a toolbox of how do you go to the next room? How do you reinvent yourself? How do you start something new? How do you begin again? And especially if you're coming from somewhere you don't want to be anymore. Right. And how did you arrive 
to this being a thing that needed to be addressed, right? It's, it's an interesting topic, but you know, when you say, I'm gonna sit down and write a book on this particular topic, or like you're, you historically, what have you come across this like? So as a pulpit rabbi for close to 10 years, so that gave me a lot of experience of what people were dealing with. And then I have a private clientele, and then I work nationally for Canyon Ranch. So I have a lot of individuals that come to me from all different cultures and races and religions. And there was the same overriding theme. And every time I described sort of this metaphor of how do you cross, everybody looked at me like, just give me the answer, Rabbi, and I'll do it. And I thought, God, you know, we talk a lot about the challenges of what it means to reinvent yourself, but we don't talk about how to do it. And so it really kind of wrote itself. And then, fortunately, Random House liked it. (laughs) (laughs) So um, a couple of themes in the book. I'm just going to – there's one quote that jumped out out at me when I was thumbing through it. Um, sometimes there's no single person or incident that causes us to lose our faith in ourselves. It happens more gradually over a series of situations or relationships in our lives that make us gradually question our worth. Um, and when I read that, you know, I think that happens a lot in transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think even as innovators and people that listen to the show, like we're in constant states of, you know, transition because you're like you're always on to the next new idea and like do I belong in this space or but I would love for you to kind of break that concept down you know in terms of of how you how you intended it well so I once saw this tv interview by a very famous actress actor and they said overnight you've become this huge success and he was it was a long 29 years as if the overnight was 29 years long and I think often people don't look at the route or the journey along the way. And so sometimes we use that to validate, well, we're not worth it, right? We have what we deem a failure, which I don't think is a failure, but we deem it a failure or we see that as unsuccessful and it leads to another room and we see that as unsuccessful and we start to use that as proof that we're not good enough. And I actually think that's proof that we're on the way to something great. It just sometimes takes longer than we planned. Well, it's also, you know, because later in the book you talk about this idea of selective memory. And I Mm -hmm. think those two things tie together. It's like, oh, uh, you know, I remember something a certain way. Or or you only remember a few select details to tell yourself whatever truth you want to tell yourself. Absolutely. Um, How do you, like, is there... You know, is there a methodology you've uncovered for dealing with, you know, kind of the accuracy of memory in that regard? So I tell people a lot, think about how you're narrating your story, right? Because people that are successful narrate very differently than people that feel unsuccessful. Because everybody's successful in different ways, but we measure success in a very limited way. We could talk about that later. But the truth is, is that think about how you narrate your story. Are you narrating that you are a series of unsuccesses piling on top of each other? Or do you narrate it that this led me here and that was super successful, but this was less successful, but it gave me this opportunity? And I think people get accustomed to narrating a negative story. And I want people to narrate the story so that it leads toward the positive. Well, it's interesting because we were talking earlier about entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. And entrepreneurialism and there's this maybe for the past couple of years has been this idea of celebrating failure right and which is those two things those two words don't even go often go together uh and I, i'm curious as to what your take is on that idea of like oh yes 
the bad version of failure where it's like, oh, I'm not good enough anymore <laughs> versus the good version of failure, which means, oh, I've discovered like the was it the Edison. I've found 10,000 ways to not make a light bulb. Um, how do you, you know, what's the, I don't know, the mind mechanic? that goes So I love that idea of celebrate failure, and I've heard it often. The problem is people don't really internalize it. They repeat it often. Right. But that idea of celebrating your failure, I mean, who wants to go around and be like, that just went down the tubes, but my God, am I thrilled. I'm just going to celebrate <laughs> it with Ooh, one big party. Money. Right. Like, <laughs> that, you know, startup just crashed. Yeah. I, I'm on my way to success. So it's, it, it's great in idea, but it's hard to actually internalize. So what I often tell people is to change the word from failure bit to celebrating that effort. Right. Right. Because when you realize- Good try, Joey. Good try, but to celebrate good tries because you also felt more successful when you realized that you were making an effort as opposed to failing. Think right. about the soccer team when you were a kid. If the coach said, celebrate your failure to put the goal in the opposite <laughs> side, you'd be like, I don't think so, nor would your teammates. But right. if you said, you know, that was a really great effort- there's something to be celebrated there. Well, there also is, I mean, it's like, I mean, you talk about sports and the, those pain points of winning, winning or losing. And there's a, a football player and it's been this viral story about how he's, he gave back his son's uh, participation trophies. Yeah, and, I heard that. And there's this idea like, you know, there is a win. You need to feel a win or a loss in order to get to the next level, right? And I think when you – because that you have that emotional recognition, you, either you don't want to feel that again, right, with that pain point, or you want to feel better. Um, but is there something that you've experienced in that, in that theme? Like is there – like how much of it is good try, keep going, and how much of it is, hey – Right. I Stop. Think, <laughs> I think the helicopter parenting has created a problem, right? right? Every kid gets a trophy for being on the team. Like, everything is celebrated. I think there are limits because why would you achieve, right? If you don't know that something is not – doesn't have value, you wouldn't achieve for more. If everything is always equal, you'd stay where you are. Right. But I think the challenge is knowing, okay, this is an attempt that I really did try. And I really did put a lot of effort to it. And along the way, there were a lot of bumps. And it really led me somewhere else versus I tried and it just didn't work out. You know, my kid saying to me, you know, I tried to go to bed when you asked. I just couldn't do it. It's like, that doesn't really count. (laughs) I told my daughter yesterday, I said, said, there is no try. There's either do or not do. Right. (laughs) There's action or inaction. Right. Um, And... and yeah, I want to stick on failures for a second because there sure. was an interesting concept you had in there as well uh, about you being a yoga practitioner. Um, I don't know how uh, yoga and Judaism mix, but well, they <laughs> mix. Oh, they mix. <laughs> but well, um, but but this idea, of, like, what are you actually practicing? Right, the failure or the body mechanics that you go through in yoga and not getting a pose right. I think parallels in business and personal life of like, oh, okay, I'm trying to do this one thing and it's not shaping up the way I intended. But just kind of talk about that that idea of what that means. Right. I think I mentioned in the book that repeatedly practicing the same wrong chords on the piano will make you really bad at the same wrong chords, no matter how many times you practice it. And yoga actually challenges you to practice differently, that you can't just repeatedly do it wrong and then say to yourself, well, I tried and I kept doing it. It just, you get very good at doing it wrong. And yoga actually challenges it, do it differently. Look at your breath. Look at your legs. Look at your arms. It, it challenges you to look at your whole body. And every time you look at it differently, you're practicing something differently. Do you find that there's a lot of parallels in what you do? Like, you know, the joke of yoga and Judaism or even this idea of, like, 
I think there's a lot of personal and internal methodologies in the book, but also how those translate into businesses, which I know you've done a lot of corporate consulting. But, you know, what are some of the parallels of like the individual versus the organization, you know, making these kind of transitional shifts? I think very much the individual thinks that what I'm doing can't translate into the organization because I'm in this huge web of people that can't adapt to what I'm doing. And I think part of the challenge as an individual is saying, look, I want to try this differently and I want the potential to see if there's something there. And we'll try it together. And if it doesn't work, we can fail. But that takes a lot of courage. Right. It takes a lot of courage. And it's very hard, especially if you have people around you that are difficult and want to keep things status quo. There's also like this idea like you don't want to be the person to rock the boat, right? <laughs> right. And mediocrity is celebrated in this day and age. It yeah. really is. It's like if you're too good, other people resent you. And if you're not good enough, so it's the extremes get punished. So it's kind of like stay in the middle, stay in the treading water zone. What's the upside for the boat rocker? For the boat rocker is potential for real success. What I call success not in terms of fame or money or notoriety, but that internal. Well, those are three things I'm shooting for. <laughs> well, I think those are the first things you shoot for, right? I think those are the first things you shoot for, yeah. but I think it's a limited definition of success. Right. And if you want that limited definition, and I think everybody wants their basic needs met, I think something that's interesting is once people's basic needs are met, happiness levels do not increase substantially. So the majority of people whose basic needs are met are as happy as the people making millions and millions of dollars. Right. So it's not about happiness. That's about ego. So it really comes down to once I've achieved some level of success where my basic needs are met, then what kind of contribution am I making? And what kind of meaning am I deriving this? And what kind of fulfillment do I have? And that creates long-term success. Um, you're a lady. I'm a lady. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a rabbi, which, you know, you don't hear too often. You are, I think, the 60th. I'm number 60 in the conservative movement. Nice. Um, so it's a nice number. <laughs> I was last because my last name was Zwelling before I got married. And they went alphabetically. So I think I could have been number 55. Darn it. Darn it. Starting that Z? Yeah, ZW. <laughs> yeah, it was the way out. It pushed you away. But yeah. I, I'm D. I would have been. Oh, you would have been right up there. Yeah. Um, but I'm not a woman, so I'm automatically eliminated from the process. Uh, so, but no, like I mean, this this idea, you've kind of been able to forge a very different path for yourself, a non-traditional path. And I think that's an interesting you know, journey and story in and of itself. Um, kind of talk a little bit about your, your origins and well, how this happened. People always call me the entrepreneurial rabbi because in the rabbinate, people don't do what I do. They don't sort of, there's a track that you go through, which is that you become a rabbi at a synagogue and then you go to a bigger synagogue and then you go to a bigger synagogue. And I sort of just cut that whole track. And I think it has a lot to do with how I was raised. I was raised in a family that had a storefront business. How many kids? Just me and my brother. Oh, see? You already, double, you already doubled the, the record. Oh, yeah. I didn't like being from two. <laughs> but he and I, and my brother's very much an entrepreneur. And the two of us were raised in a storefront where my father sold fixtures, lighting fixtures. And so every day, people came and they bought light bulbs and lamps. And, you know, most of the day was transactions with light bulbs. But I learned very quickly what it took to sell. I learned very quickly what it took to do the mathematics and what sold and where you put things and how to place them and how to reinvent the store because if it stayed the same, then nothing right. was going to move. And I worked in the store every day after school. So the, the irony is that when I got to math in the third grade, they kept asking me to show my work. And I had no idea how to show the work because all I had worked was the cash register. So I knew exactly the math. I just didn't know how to show it on the paper. <laughs> 
So I think my father being very entrepreneurial and not just having the store, but then he went on to develop fixtures in development properties and doing all kinds of lighting in different places that were unexpected. So... Um, and then, so if that's, that's your upbringing, what was, I don't know, just like, how did you, cause I read that you were a cheerleader as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, <laughs> My so claim you- to fame, I was a cheerleader. <laughs> and actually I think it's a really, imp- people, they badmouth cheerleaders. I don't get it. Um, cheerleaders. Too many movies from the eighties. Right. And they think they're sort of dumb. And actually some of the cheerleaders I know are some of the smartest people I know. In fact, what cheerleading does is it encourages you to cheer for other people. And that's a very hard thing in our day and age. Most people are cheering for themselves and actually trying to denigrate the person next to them because they think that their success will be hindered if the person next to them is successful. And I actually think the opposite. I think it's about abundance. The team's successful, you're successful, right? right? And I'm all about abundance. So How I think do you get people to believe that. I don't think everybody believes it. No, I, I don't mean, think or they they, it. they intellectually get it, right? Oh, I guess there is enough to go around. But then when you when the pressure's put on, you're like, move, get out of my way. I'm going. I'm trying to get this thing. Well, I think there's also a real level of humility that you have to live by, right? You have to be- know what you don't know, and then surround yourself with people that know better than you. And the minute you do that, you rise. But people don't think that. They think if I surround myself with people better than me, then I'll look worse. And in fact. Some of the most successful people I know in the internet business, in the startup business, in the entrepreneurial business, have people around them that are way better than them. I said I said something the other day. I said the sometimes the coolest person at the party is the person who brings the coolest person to the party. Yeah, uh, that's very true. And it's very like, true. Oh, how'd you get Snoop to come to? It's like, <laughs> well, you, you know, it's just like everybody flocks that. Like nobody, people feel that 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 guest is kind of like. Uh, on a pedestal, if you will, but the person who brought them is... Right, and it goes back to worshiping what we think we want when really what we want is meaningful connections and really the possibility of doing something great. And often it's the person that brings that person to the party that's the one that does something really quite great. And the person in front of the camera too, but it's a different different greatness. I'm going to bring you to one of my parties. Oh, good. I'll take it. Um, when someone picks up the phone and calls you uh, from a company, uh, what what's the I don't know what's the thing that they're looking for? So my original call from a corporation like Union Bank or Thomson Reuters, places I've spoken at, uh, young presidents' organization, they always ask the first thing, Rabbi, we want to talk about ethics in the business place. And the minute we get into fifteen minutes of conversation, they completely flip that and talk about how do we make people feel allegiance to the work and feel, and we talk about what does it mean to be valued? Because they find that people work harder when they're valued. And it's not always just about money. Being valued is really being appreciated and people need that more than anything. So I end up talking to a lot of companies about how do you value your employees? How do you feel value? How is value noted beyond just the monetary or the title? Right. And, uh, You'd be surprised how many companies really want to revisit how they want to look at how they support their teammates. What are some common things you hear? I guess I don't know, like a, a universality that you've heard. It's like ah, oh, from company A to company C, it's like universally. Easy. I hear we gave them a raise. Why don't they feel valued? <laughs> As if money is going to solve it right. all. And we all know that money can help, but it doesn't solve. And people often say, you know. I just want to be heard or I want to be listened to. And I hear that so often from employees. They want to know that they're being heard and not shut down. And that, to, to them, creates value. 
That's great. And uh, and how do you bring that to life? Is it just like are you going in and speaking? Are you con- like is it a workshop? Like what's the what's the Sherry Hurst? So product all different. The Sherry Hurst product has a lot of different configurations. Often companies will bring their executive leadership on a retreat to me at Canyon Ranch or at a different facility, and we will do a three day retreat where we'll have different workshops and we'll practice because it's experiential, right? You can talk all night about you know you got to value your employees, and the person goes back and does the exact same thing. Right. They really have to internalize what does it mean to be valued and what does it mean to listen and so we practice listening skills workshops we practice how the difference between waiting to talk versus actual listening you know often we're just sitting there waiting Mm -hmm. to get your turn um so we do a lot of experiential stuff and we also speaking of which no i'm just (laughs) and we also get into a lot of why people have a hard time valuing each other because they feel that they'll be slighted or they won't look as good right and we get into a lot of the psychology of that and it roots way back into people's young adulthood where they didn't feel valued and if they spread that wealth they're somehow going to lose their value so we do that a lot for companies and then we also do the 10 commandments of business which is like what are the commandments that you want your business to be about right and so funny companies have this mission statement but it doesn't really execute their values so we work with them on how to create those how to create the commandments how to write them and how to collectively put them together and implement them. Is uh, when you say ten commandments, uh, um, is there is there often a resistance to you know having a, a theological person coming in you know to a to a business to to help them figure out what spirituality like does it even belong in the workplace or should you know where's the the balance of you know it's acceptance? really it's so interesting Chris how much it's changed more and more people are seeing that people that feel good about themselves not just physically and emotionally but spiritually are better employees and so you see universally corporations becoming more and more communicative about spirituality they used to run from it oh a rabbi we don't want that but then they start to work with me and they're like wait a minute this has real value for people and especially because we want people to feel good and you look at it with the internet startups in silicon valley if you looked at how they constructed their companies in the beginning you know they could order food and there was ping pong tables and they could wear jeans all those subtle changes even how the room looked made people feel differently and when they started to look at their emotional self-worth yep. and their personal self-worth their employee worth became much greater that's great um what uh i don't know <laughs> How did you discover this as a need, right? When you, you know, you start off cheerleading and, and, and then Playing you tennis. D- <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not the direct path, right? It's not like you go from cheerleading to playing tennis yeah, in college most, most to the rabbit. Like my, you know, my dad was an ex and that's how, I mean, that's what I ended up doing. Or they tried to do that and decided that that was not the thing. But, um, but it's always interesting when someone rises to the, you know, the apex of any specific religion and doesn't necessarily come from that in, you know, in the traditional sense. How it's does- really interesting because when I was in rabbinical school, I had a number of friends at Harvard Business School and I went and spent the week with them because I was very much contemplating to make a change, to go from rabbinical school to business school. And everybody thought I was crazy. If you're in rabbinical school, then you get a PhD in Talmud or some right. academic. And the only thing I was interested in was business school. And I think part of that was there was a hunger in me to create things from nothing, to really be entrepreneurial. And it wasn't being nurtured in the rabbinate. The reason I chose being a rabbi was that I felt I could do the most healing, right? I thought about being a doctor, but I really thought I could make be a real change maker in the rabbinate. But what's drawn me to creating a different rabbinate has been the entrepreneurialism and the sense of innovation and the sense of, 
keeping it fresh. I get bored easily. Maybe yeah. it's like adult ADD. I've never been diagnosed, <laughs> but maybe that's what it is. Is there any loneliness to being unique? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great question. You know, I was a pioneer in my field. I was the first woman rabbi in a 100-year-old synagogue. And at that point, they hadn't even had women on the bima. So you'll appreciate the story. They built a platform for me to stand on, and I felt like I was in kindergarten. You know, I was like standing on this platform in order to speak. And I got complaints at the beginning. We love the content of your sermon, but you sound like a girl. Because they were so used to hearing a man's, right. and I don't even have a high voice. So I really felt if you do good work on a regular basis, that everything will come out in the wash. But I've learned that uh, when you're breaking ceilings, sometimes there's a lot of glass that shatters around you. And it can be a little bit brutal. Yeah. But that doesn't deter me from keep going. No, it's interesting because the one thing I wanted to ask you is like what has been your own sort of personal threshold, right? What has been the one transition that you found most difficult? And I don't know if that's it or if that's an example of it, but has there been anything where you're like, I could have used this book? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my mother died when I was 40. My father died when I was 30. And they were only 18 years older than us. And... Both of those deaths were very difficult, which most people say, obviously, the death of a parent is very difficult. But I was a public figure and was supposed to be cheering for God and sort of being like, I know all things about mortality and I can tell you all about it. And yet I felt like I was in a hallway of which I did not know how to get out of. And I was incredibly sad and grieving. And I thought, where is that book? Where is that book that helps me move through it? And people were expecting something from me that I didn't think I could offer. And so what I ended up doing was telling them my truth and telling them that I didn't have the answers. Right. And when I started to say, I'm looking for the answers within me, that really started to resonate for people and gave me a lot of courage and a lot of strength. Um, not that there's ever a good time for parents to pass away. What, at what point in your career were you, you know, at that time? So with my father, I was one year married, two years into my pulpit job as a pulpit rabbi, yeah. and he died in six months from pancreatic cancer. Wow. And it was very difficult to be in front of people and to – I remember a woman who had breast cancer who I knew quite well came up to me and she said – "You." she saw me on the BEMA, which is our mm -hmm. ribbonic platform. She said, Rabbi, you look so sad. It had been about a month after my father's death. And I said, you know, I feel sad, right, recognizing the yep. obvious. And she said, but you have another parent. And I thought, you know, we have a lot of thresholds where people don't say the right thing because mm -hmm. they don't know what to say and they're afraid. And I wasn't angry with her, but – then the truth came to be that my mother died soon after with brain cancer. Oh, wow. And uh, it was truly difficult because her, you have another parent, was actually not true. Well, I find, I find that, I'll, and I guess, well, I'll, I'll, I'll digress from that. But I think how, once you came out of, once you crossed the threshold, or if you ever have, like, what, how did you view things differently? Right? Because like, you're one, one year into a marriage, two years into, like, an unprecedented career, uh, like that's a very inopportune time to be jarred. Well, there's a myth that I actually feel I broke, and I cannot stress it enough to people. There's this fantasy that if you go back to what it was, that you will return to what it was, right? Like if I went back to the synagogue now, it would just be like it was. Or if I went back to my right. first year of marriage, it would be just like that. But you can't live backwards, but on top of it, you are changed from being in that situation. So if you went back now, you're not the same person. Right. So I think there's this myth that It's very meta of you. Yeah, it's very meta. <laughs> but I also think I mean but so, I also think people think they can really go back and oh, if I could only go back to my first year of marriage when it was so blissful and we didn't have children and it was so romantic. 
you're not that same you. You can't go back there. Right. It, you can have a new blissful. But I think that's the big myth that people think. If I go back, it will be like it once was. And it can't be. Well, even th- that transition, right, from a very sad time, uh, another thing in your book was that 50% of happiness is determined by genetics, mm-hmm. uh, and the rest of it comes from space? Where, uh, where <laughs> 50% is just your disposition, right? right? You come into the world wired. I had four kids. They came into the world a certain way. Then you have 40% that is dictated by your environment. That means how you're raised, who you're raised with, and it's not about having this typical parental model, right? It's not that traditional family like we thought. You need one person championing you. And then 10% has to do with unexpected circumstances, right? Like you could be a happy kid and your father dropped dead. Suddenly you're not so happy and that's really affected you emotionally. Um, So because of that, that changes. So you've got a lot of control. People think 50%, I'm I'm done for. But actually if you think about 50% more of a marathon is 13 more miles. That's a lot. You have a lot of power and control over how you want to live your life. That's good. What, um, I don't know, do you have a personal mantra that you try to operate by? Like, like for me, there's one thing I always, like, in no matter what situation I encounter, is like, change the way you look at things and the things you look at will begin to change. Right? Yeah, and, that's great. And that's either in business or in personal life or a creative opportunity or a conversation or something I'm bugged by and I'm like, all right, how can I think about this differently? Right. And it's kind of like my go-to thing. So I have two that I really live by. One was taught to me by my husband, which is luck is the residue of design. People always say, I'm lucky. I'm so lucky. Actually, people that are lucky have put a lot of work and a lot of strategy and a lot of effort into that luck. Very rarely is luck just happen. There are luckier people than not, but it is the residue of design. So that's the first one. But the second one I really live by is not yet. It's this great Jewish philosopher at 88 years old was asked if he did this particular thing that everybody's supposed to do by the time they're 13. And he said, not yet. And often when you hear the word no, people think no means no. I think it means not yet. And that there's yet another way to explore it, another way to look at it. And so my husband's like, you don't believe in no. And it's not that I don't believe in no. I just believe that it's just not yet. Right. That's a great one. Yeah. I, li- I like that a lot. Um, so you, another concept that I liked was that you talked about these liminal moments, which liminal was the first time I'd heard that word. So Yes. First rabbi hug, first time. I've you got a lot this. of firsts. Yeah, this is good. Um, but it's also like, I guess it's this crossroads that you're at where, you're, you know, it's leaving an old concept behind or an old way of living behind and transitioning. Right. It's not always difficult moments. It's like right. having a baby getting a promotion like you think the promotion is going to be fabulous and it's this liminal moment and it's different than what you expected right and so i think a lot of people think these liminal moments are only negative or depressing it's all kinds of things once you have a baby as you know life Mm -hmm. is not the same right you've crossed a threshold of which you cannot return back to what it once was they talk about that in like uh i talked to a a grievance counselor once and Mm -hmm. it's like they were like grief is not just when something bad happens it's it's like when there's a significant change and you're leaving behind an old right people think they just grieve people but they grieve dreams they grieve hopes they grieve ideas they grieve the possibility of something they Mm -hmm. they have a vision of where this company is going to go and it doesn't go in that direction it might go in a totally different direction but they still have to grieve what they thought it would be like right um People think that grief only exists with people, but we grieve a lot of things. Is there, I find that people either oversimplify or overcomplicate, right? Is there a middle 
ground, <laughs> you know, especially when it comes to those liminal moments, right? Like, oh, I had a baby, cool. Like, and then next thing you know, you're in some sort of mental or emotional turmoil, or the company has pivoted, and like, oh man, I wish we could have still made the square basketballs like we thought. We were so I do. think this is the advent of technology. I love technology. I am that mother that's showing all the other mothers in the carpool line how to work the iPad and how to do the iPhone and how to get Spotify. I am that mother, right? I'm like Snapchat and this, and all the mothers are like. Rabbi Hirsch, could you help me with uh, sort of like my other hobby? But I think the that's the possibility of technology. I think the difficulty with technology is we have so much information that we tend to overcomplicate because you get a bump on your arm and suddenly you're on health net <laughs> yes. and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, I have brain cancer because it's on my pinky, right? Like right. it's just too much information. And I often tell people, you know, you want to have a baby, the best person to ask is the five people in your circle that you really admire and respect. Right. Those are the people you really take your cues from. You don't, as much as we admire sort of J-Lo or whoever, or Britney Spears, whoever it is, Taylor Swift is my my girl. All right. Okay. right? I love her. I love her music. I know that's And you bring her to the party, then you'll be the coolest person. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I got I to gotta look like a model. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think most often we think that's who we take our cues from. But actually we take our cues from five people that we – think are a little ahead of us, a little more knowledgeable than us, and that's our best information. So to overcomplicate, to not overcomplicate, and to not oversimplify, you got to ask a lot of questions of those five people and to really identify who they are. Um, no, that's, a, a, that's definitely a, a good one because it's, it's, it's just funny. Like it, it, We have that natural tendency to like, oh, it's, it's going to be so awful. And But the, to seek counsel in that way is smart. I think when you talk about your entrepreneurial journey and breaking ceilings that you know most people couldn't even see, um, who did you go to for those mentor moments? Right, like when you're at, when you're at the top of something or at the the forefront of something, it's hard to go like, oh, who should I go ask about this experience? So it's interesting to me because I was in a synagogue with a lot of very well known people because I was in the middle of Beverly Hills and we had five thousand congregants, and a lot of people women especially that have achieved a lot came and sought me out. They would call me for lunch. And I would think to myself, oh my God, these aren't necessarily my friends. But in terms of who I take my cues from, I took my cues solely solely from the people that know me best and could care less that I have written a book or not written a book. So my mother, she's a very good like thumbs down, thumbs up person. Right. Um, my husband, uh, who is usually the last to celebrate something, um, not because he's not excited for me, but because he's a realist. And But some of these women that I really look to, Sherry Lansing was a formidable force in my life, and Don Ostroff, two women that I think have really achieved greatness in fields that were unexpected. Yeah. Um, but they're more publicly known, um, which is why I give their names, but they really helped me see what's possible. No, that's great, because it's, you know, a, a, a lot of the people that we talk to in the show are like, probably doing something or some things or a lot of things for the first time ever. And it's like, it's hard to go like, all right, who do I go to? Even if it's just the business problem, right? Well, and you would laugh because when we, synagogues always plan their programming and Jewish community always plans their programming a certain way. And at the time I started, I was in charge of planning all the programming. And so I called up NBC because it was when Thursday night television was must-see TV. And I went to them and I met with them and I said, how do you plan your programming? And literally every rabbi was like, you went to NBC to meet with them for programming? The TV world is different than the Jewish world. I said, except that millions of people are turning into, tuning into NBC and not millions of people turning, tuning into the synagogue life. And so I really 
I'm not afraid to look outside of my realm to right. find new answers, possibilities. And I'm always people are always surprised where I'm looking for new information. You have to. Uh, where's I mean, where, what's been the most surprising place you're like, huh? That was cool. It's a cool experience. That uh, mostly churches. Apply. I've been to a lot of church services. I know a lot of priests and ministers. Not church's chicken. No. no. Okay. <laughs> like a lot. Not church's chicken, but a lot of <laughs> Shout churches. Out to church's chicken. A lot of churches, which people think rabbis go to churches, and there's a lot to be learned there, especially those big Baptist churches. Right. Those are my favorites. Um, I think the other surprising place is in television. I look a lot in entertainment because entertainment really captures our imagination and our innovation and there's a lot happening in that industry from gaming so people are always surprised when I say like I'm really into I know exactly the k- games that kids are playing and I'm really interested in I go and meet with Captain Sparkles and people are like really he's a YouTuber <laughs> he's 25 years old why would a rabbi meet with him he's got a lot to teach me Toby Turner has been on our show oh really that's cool yeah like him so yeah. You're, you've joined the ranks right and people think <laughs> how do you even know about YouTube rabbi but yeah. I mean, I'm looking at, you know. There's no rules against it, right? There's, there's nothing like that says you can't bench. I, but I think sometimes when people are in positions of authority in a specific religion, it's like, oh, why are you doing that? Like, you, you, you shouldn't be there. Well, and you should stay within certain parameters. And I think a common thread that I see through successful innovators is that they don't stay within the parameters. They're always looking in other places. And people always joke with me, you know, you can look on my bookshelf right next to my bed and most rabbis you think are going to have all these philosophy books. And I've got People Magazine right next to Vogue Magazine, right next to a Talmud, right next to the Bible, you know, <laughs> right next to Brooks's new book. Because And then I just read, you know, Holly Madison this weekend because I really want to know what people are reading, her new book. You know? have, you read, have you read Fifty Shades of Grey? That's the one I haven't written. <laughs> I have not read that. It's now available on uh, – it's audio book now. Um, but my pu- my publicist <laughs> for my first book found Fifty Shades of Grey, and she kept it from me for a while, even though we were good friends. And I kept saying to her, do not treat me like a Why rabbi. Why aren't you answering your phone? That's what you were saying. <laughs> yeah. <to her. laughs> um, we, you mentioned technology earlier, uh, uh, and uh, we there's been some thinking around – the idea of how connected we are versus not connected we are, especially when it comes to things that we encounter on our mobile devices or on our computers versus internal stuff. And especially when I think about, you talk about your corporations wanting a set of value systems and what do people value these days. And I think, I could be wrong, I would love you to chime in on it, but this idea that we encounter so many different ideas and ideals. It's like we think we want what Joe, our Facebook friend, did yesterday. and Or it's the... Um, that filter, because Joe is going to post the picture of him riding a horse, but not the picture he's riding a horse because he lost his job and he had the free time. Exactly. <laughs> to do it, right? right. We carefully craft how we want other people to consume us, right? We all wear veils and we carefully figure out how do I want you to see me? And so that's why on Facebook, people are like, it's been 18 years of marital bliss. I could not be happier. And I'm like, wait, I've been married for 15 years, not 15 years of marital bliss. I mean, it's right. it's marriage, right? Some days good, some days bad, and some days ambivalent. But I still want to be married, and I still right. adore my husband. But I think one of the things that technology has created a lot of fear for people. Do you remember back in the 50s when everybody was gathering around to watch the television set? They used to The pundits used to say, oh, this is the end of family time. They'll never have dinner together. And now there's this... Each kid has their own device in their hands, mm-hmm. and so we're all sitting in the living room with our own device or playing player versus player, and so there's no communication. All change is nerve-wracking for people. The instinct is to stay inert, and I think technology is exciting. I mean, 
look what's happened in the last 50 years. Yeah. It's incredible. I was talking to my children last night, and my five-year-old was joking. He's like, he wasn't joking, but it's not happening. He said, <laughs> I want a laptop like my oldest brother. And I thought, your oldest brother got a laptop for his upcoming bar mitzvah. You're right. five. And then I explained to him I didn't have a laptop because they didn't exist. And he was like. Did he pass out? Yeah. I mean, he literally, he was like, are you 100? How old are you, mom, 100? I'm like, not 100, thank you. So it's just people are nervous about technology, especially because it's unknown. So the show's called Innovation Crush. I hope, cool. Uh, Stacy told you. You tell her what the name of the where she was coming. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, but I'm curious as to what are you crushing on, either in your own industry in life or outside your like. Where have you looked outside? Like, is there anything that you see that you're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing? Uh, go. Well, I'm loving. Uh, I'm loving bringing sort of spirituality to unexpected places. You know, I love bringing spirituality to a movie theater, right? And doing a thing beforehand or posting up huge signs in places like a yogurt place that is forces you to question yourself. I love bringing that sort of sense of who am I and what am I doing here in the most unexpected places. And I like the idea of bringing it to Whole Foods, right? In Because I think people think spirituality and innovation can only happen outside the walls of these very rigid places. And I want to say they happen everywhere. Right. And so, but you got to be asking questions. So that's interesting to me. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I think is, I, I'm very fascinated with what's going on in the gaming industry and what possibilities are. Are you a gamer? Like, do you, do you play? Like, I, I'm, you, I like to play. <laughs> I try not to play because, you know, I have a teenage boy. But I like to play. I like to see what's going on there. That industry has endless possibilities. Yeah. I'm very interested in it and seeing what can happen and what we can do. One of the things we're thinking about is, you know, how do we light candles for Friday night in the world on an app. How, how cool would that be? So everybody, anywhere, anytime could light candles at the same time regardless of their time right. zone. I love the possibilities of what that can do and games and podcasts, all that. What are these challenging, uh, thank you for the podcast shout out. Uh, what, do you th what are these uh, yogurt posters challenging us to do? What did they say or what? what <laughs> so like, you know, in a yogurt, in a yogurt shop, you'll typically see the flavors. Yep. But what if there's a question there is, what have you done that's meaningful today? Suddenly you're getting yogurt, and it's no longer just this mundane act, but it forces you to think greater than that moment. Right. Or who else, if you could give anyone a free yogurt today, who would it be? Right. It forces you outside of yourself. And I think every time we're put in those positions, we're growing our soul, which is yeah. honestly the most important thing we do. Well, I like that concept because I feel like most times we don't reflect until something bad happens. Absolutely. Right? Is it usually like, ah, and it, some form of failure or, you know, a sad event happens and we're not, nobody's in the habit or the practice of continually trying to raise their level of thinking. Right. I mean, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, but it's very easy now to live an unexamined life, right? It's very easy to just go about your day, do all your mundane acts and not really reflect on it. And what's going to actually grow you as a person is that reflection and how can I bring something to the table? And the more creative you are in the world and the more the world is presenting creative ideas to you, that just creates innovation. Um, complete this phrase for me. Sure. Innovation to me is? Innovation to me is seeing beyond possibility. I like that. Um, how do you do that? <laughs> it's realizing that Something is possible 
and then there's something beyond that that you don't even know, that's greatness. Right. That's great. No, because it, uh, I had a boss once who said a conclusion is only where you stop thinking. Yeah. I like, think oh, it's, got it. And you're like, yeah, that's cool. Keep going. Right. I see people think, oh, this is the greatest possibility. And I I, I, I think dream bigger. I, I don't know if you ever watched. Oprah used to give away things on that free show, on mm-hmm. her show. And I loved that. I used to love Oprah. And the first contestant, she gave that person a car. And the woman went nuts. And then the second contestant came out and... Oprah gave her a house, a car, and tuition for all her kids to go to college. (laughs) And suddenly this woman's face, the first one, just went totally sad. And off the cuff, Oprah turned to her. Yeah. She turned to her. She goes, you got to dream bigger. And I thought it was such a powerful statement. It's like she dreamed of a car, but there was something beyond that. And I think sometimes when you dream beyond possibility, you don't know what you can achieve. It's interesting. There's a uh, there's a really one of my favorite marketing campaigns in the last couple of years. It wasn't even a campaign. It was just a moment. But there was an airline in uh, Canada that there was a Santa Claus in the airport terminal, and they're like, "Oh, what do you want for Christmas?" And everybody went up and asked, you know, talk to Santa because they were waiting for their flight to start. When that plane landed, that airline went and bought all the gifts that they all asked for. Wow. So some people said, like, oh, I don't know, socks. And then they got socks. And one dude was like, I want a 50-inch you know, TV. And there, there was a wrapped uh, 50-inch TV that was there. No offense on Christmas, right? Right. No offense on Christmas. Um, but I also think <laughs> you have to dream it, right? You have to dream it and then dream even bigger than that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, you know, my brother's a real innovator and he's very, he's done very well in the internet business and startups. And one of the things he always says is he sees things that don't exist. Right. And I think that's very powerful. I think it's very true. I often tell employees when I'm working with corporations, see beyond what you think is possible. Yeah. There's a book I like. Uh, I was just talking to somebody about it today. It was um, It's called Sun Stand Still. Hmm. And it's, you probably know the Bible better than I do. But there's a story where, you know, there's a battle happening and someone prays for the sun to stand still. And it's like an impossible prayer. Like, how could this potentially happen in, in the middle of a battle? Because that was the only way they're going to win if they could continue to fight and not let the other side rest up for the night because they were bigger and stronger or whatever. Hmm. Um, and so it happened. And the book goes on to talk about, like, what's impossible for you? What's the impossible goal? Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of times we set the goal that we can see. Right and, right. and I think a lot of people say to me, you know, Rabbi Hirsch, you've taken this very unconventional route. And here you are a rabbi of Canyon Ranch Properties. Nobody's a rabbi of a, a wellness facility that's international. Like, how did you come up with that? And a lot of it is, I, I, I feel like it's limitless. Like, if you can dream it or think even beyond it, something's possible. It doesn't mean that it's going to come out like you expect. Right. It just means that it's something that could be interesting. And I follow all – this is the one thing I have to say, Chris, with innovation, is people burn bridges left and right. I always introduce and connect people left and right because that is where innovation happens. Sometimes right. the most – the person that I have absolutely nothing in common with is where I come up with my most creative ideas or where I think, oh, I should do that. Yeah. You know? And, but people really shut their doors. They think, what connection does that have to me? And I always say – if it has no connection, you must meet with them. Yeah, and that's all. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's these um, unexpected collisions. Yeah, where you go like, I love oh, that. Okay, like uh, you've been coming, you come in contact with the concept or a person or an idea that you know, you would not have gotten in your five friends. Right, because nobody thinks a rabbi reads People magazine, and yet I get a lot from people. 
right? I get yep. a lot. So you've got to look in unexpected places in order to have these unexpected collisions. Thank you for coming. This has been awesome. How can people find you on the interwebs and where can they get the book? Very easy to find. I'm SherryHirsch.com. You don't spell your name the, the traditional way. I do Sherry. not. No one spells my name the traditional way. Right. I think because my mom just Sher. made it up. Yes, it's S H E. R-R-E, and then I got this Hirsch, H-I-R-S-C-H. Not Zwelling, though. Not Zwelling, even though I love that last name. I I, I bit the bullet and took my (laughs) husband's name. But they can also just go online. Any bookseller from Amazon onwards carries Thresholds by Sherry Hirsch, and you can enter to win a sweepstakes currently, and there's a lot going on. So I hope you'll come find me. Cool. Oh, I know you don't drink, but our our friends, I'm yelling because I'm moving around, and... um. The Detroit City Distillery wow. have been giving us uh, some product. And me being Detroit born and, and raised, I, I figured I would give you some brand new vodka that's fresh on the market. Well, let me just say, first of all, I love Detroit. It's one of my favorite cities. Me, thank you. I lo- The people <laughs> from Detroit are fab. But um, vodka is very, very popular with latkes, which is our Hanukkah dish. There so you go. we'll be using this, and yeah. I appreciate it. See, and I went to high school with a lot of Jews. I'm, I'm sure Detroit. <laughs> yes. You've got a whole Jewish, <laughs> Jewish world. I keep trying to bridge the gap, and I'm just digging a hole. But anyway, thank you for coming, uh, everyone. This has been another amazing installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it. On the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleisinger. Schleisinger, I've been friends with her for 10 years. One of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to YouTube.com slash Wait For It Comedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore. Because it's here. And it's funny. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and 3 comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.